It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. My guest today, Robert Palma. He is the Managing Partner with Hemp OZ Fund. Robert, thanks for being with us at The Talking Hedge. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with your community. Yeah. Um, so we met down in Vegas. That was the beginning of Weed Week. Um, kicked that off on on Sunday with the Alternative Investment Forum. Um, and you were one of the 13 companies where I was a investor judge uh, watching pitch for five and a half hours. Great day, solid events. Um, but I do remember you out of all of that. So um, for everyone else who wasn't there, tell us a little bit about the Hemp OZ Fund, maybe how you got into the industry and, and uh, what Hemp OZ Fund is all about. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, I mean, got into Hemp OZ Fund um, four years ago. I mean, I moved from Florida to California to get into the cannabis industry, uh, mostly because to get into the industrial hemp side of things. I'm a mechanical engineer, so I, I fell in love with all the applications that hemp could be used for. Mm. And when I got to California, you know, the ca- cannabis capital of the United States, there was no one talking about industrial hemp. It wasn't even on anyone's radar. So I got involved with some uh, um, kind of cannabis business events and hosting those kind of events and networking. And two years, uh, 2018 is when industrial hemp was legalized. And now I started to see the conversation get starting to pick up. And it was just still pretty amazing to see how, how nascent the industry was overall. Uh, the following year in 2019, I learned about the Opportunity Zone program, which is a fantastic uh, federal program, which creates tax incentives for investors to allocate their capital gains into local communities to spur economic activity. So I decided to, to combine these two, you know, combine the opportunities on program with the hemp industry to bring investments to the hemp industry, because that was the biggest problem we had at the time is, is investing in infrastructure for the hemp industry. And in t- end of 2020 is why I created the Hempo Z Fund. And we are right now, we're still the, currently the first and only industrial hemp focused opportunities of fund. And our, our focus with the fund to say is, is that we're investing in the manufacturing and in, in for the infrastructure and for manufacturing hemp products. Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll dive into exactly what you're, what you're uh, manufacturing or focusing on, but just to kind of go back to um, something, I, I see a lot of CBD companies, I see a lot of hemp companies, but not a lot of them um, really understand like the business aspects and, and how to kind of stay in business with so much competition. Um, before I even get into the opportunity zone, you came from Florida. Tell me about your opinions about the Florida cannabis medical market. It's my opinion that it's really hard to have everything indoor, right? It's really expensive. There's a lot of humidity and, and issues with the environment there that could cause a tight flower to have powdery mildew mold and all these other issues. And when you compare that to a cheaper uh, area like California, I'm, I'm wondering how those folks that have spent million, I mean, millions of dollars. Uh, Cureleaf, I think, had $1.1 billion in sales. So they are generating ra- massive revenues. But how do they stay in business? I don't know. What's your opinion? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think the same time California was passing um, cannabis, their Prop 64, Florida had legislation on the books. And what I found out immediately was that uh, Florida is very tending toward monopolistic uh, mm-hmm. tendencies, um, meaning because one of the requirements to grow cannabis was you had to be, have been a nursery for 30 years. So mm-hmm. it's like immediately no one who, who you had to partner with a nursery you know, to, to even get into the door of the cannabis industry. And uh, just a lot of other, you know, rules and the, the legislation that made me feel like 
it's gonna be hard for a newcomer, especially someone like myself, to get into the cannabis industry in Florida. Mm-hmm. And and it's also, you know, it's also only medical. So it, and and what medical terms that you had to, you know, fall under, like you had to have severe disease, you know, I'm not sure that I'm mean, Parkinson's, like something very severe. Versus California, you can say I have pain or anxiety and you get you get medical card. So, you know, for those couple of different reasons, that's why, you know, I kind of left Florida, got into California, just because I knew it was an easier market for me to get into. I want to, I want to touch on that a little bit more, but um, back to the opportunity zone, um, low income areas, that's kind of the idea reminds me of social equity, having been in banking, SBA loans didn't help anybody. I didn't have one SBA loan in my entire career get approved. I don't know anybody that it helped. I'm, um, I'm cautiously optimistic, although not hopeful that the social equity will help anybody. Um, tell me though a little bit, um, my skepticism is, is, is uh, not a part of the story, <laughs> but uh, tell me a little bit more about the opportunity zone. Exactly what is that and how can people get involved? Because you already know what you're doing. You got the ground running. Sounds like you might even be able to help some people, if not directly, maybe through some kind of consulting or whatever, if they're not already familiar with it. But this is one of the things when you told me in Vegas, I was like, how have I not heard about this? So you're obviously on top of your stuff. Tell me about this opportunity zone a little bit more. Yeah, it's, it's a gem. You know, it's, it's something that's been kind of kept hidden, I feel like, because it's not been marketed at all. Um, but overall, the opportunity zone program was created it was created actually during the Obama administration. We started doing the legislation on it, uh, but it wasn't passed until the Tax Cut, um, Tax Cut Jobs Act 2017. And basically what it did was the federal government told every state governor to select, uh, you get a certain number, number of zones based on your population and select different municipalities that need, um, you know, need investments. You want, you want to generate economic activity. Uh, so I believe California has the most, upwards like 840, followed by Texas, New York, and Florida. And it, the, the base of the premise of these there's, uh, opportunity zones are just low-income communities, uh, you know, where the poverty rate is higher than the federal average. And the goal, of the, goal of the structure of the program is that investors can reallocate their capital gains into these zones to protect the capital gains. And then also, they're also investing it tax-free. So say we have a million dollars, we invest in this opportunity zone, the growth of all that capital at the end of 10 years comes out 100% tax-free. So that's the major incentive uh, because there's another program like that exists as today. You have the 1031 exchanges. Those are deferral programs. Uh, this is actually a tax elimination program. And so uh, my consultants that help us create the Opportunities Zone Fund, they, they really dub the Federal Opportunities Program as, as likely the largest uh, economic development program in the history of the United States uh, for what it can do. And so my advice for people you know, learning about it is <clears throat> definitely to understand how the program works and what is its incentive and what are the goals. The, the goals of the program is they basically, through the structure, how the tax incentives work, they want to handle that handles the financial side of it. So now the projects are really looking for, you know, more environmental, social uh, benefits to their investment besides just the financial. Um, that's the intention of the program. How much that is, you know, playing out to be true is not entirely 100% there yet. I think we're still in very early stages of it. And so a lot of it is like, how are we gonna generate profit? But I think as, as the program evolves and more people have capital gains, then there's actual opportunities on funds. Um, we'll start to see more investments towards the social side of it. Uh, but my advice would be to learn the program. Uh, that, uh, also talking to your state and local governments, they should know about the opportunity zones in the area. And I feel like what's most easiest is, so if you operate a fund, you have different compliance measures that you have to deal with IRS and a bunch of other documents. 
but you can, anyone can set up an opportunity zone business, which is what, when the fund gets their money, they have a certain time frame to invest in the opportunity zone business. And so all that is, is, you know, creating a business and an opportunity zone and you're eligible to receive investments. And so it's the most standard. Everyone's familiar how to start a business without any of the extraness on top of it, opportunism wise. And it just makes it easier um, because, you know, managing the fund is, is complicated. I think, I think people, I've been sold a fairy tale. I think my consultants do a little bit too job of like selling this fairy tale, like, oh, create a fund and all this money's going to come at you. It's going to be great. And I don't think that's the case. Uh, you know, there's, you're, you're dealing with stiff competition. You know, you're, you're dealing with other fund managers, stockbrokers, you know, it's a whole gamut and you have to have that professional experience in managing funds. Not, you know, if, especially just, you know, an opportunity zone while there are compliance measures on it. Yeah, definitely trust factor, right? People aren't going to throw money at you. When we were uh, in Vegas, there was another company that was pitching and they were, they were talking about 19,000% gains in crypto. Did you see that presentation? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So we followed up with them afterwards and they couldn't explain any of it. So not only me, another investor, Judge, uh, Dr. David Kunick, um, UCS Advisors, he talked to him as well and they couldn't explain it to him to, to the point where he would understand it. Um, so it's not just about returns. It's not just about the numbers. It's, it's a lot about trust. The trust factor is huge. Um, so if companies can get to know you and trust you and then, uh, implement your advice, that's one thing. Um, it's kind of interesting, man. It's a little side note. I found that doing my own consulting, I charge 250 an hour. It's not cheap, but I have to basically, uh, explain and prove like every, everything, why I'm, what I'm doing. But yet there's attorneys that have carte blanche at 650 an hour and they don't get asked anything. And I think that it's the trust factor. There's people who believe that attorneys have um, this fiduciary duty where I don't. They don't think I have that, like my reputation doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so I've got to find like it's, this, this industry is, is kind of fascinating, um, but it, it all boils down to trust really at the end of the day it's gonna be trusted brands trusted influencers a huge trust factor um having said all of that if businesses are interested in utilizing your uh consulting services what would you advise them to execute on um would you advise them to get into production of hemp processing of hemp with brands retailing selling of brands or ancillary like within this opportunity uh zone what are some realistic opportunities? Well, well, within the Opportunity Zone program, the opportunities are endless. You can create a movie theater opportunity zone, you know, uh, a yard sale, you know, selling cars. Like the so this doesn't have to be hemp at all? No, yeah. For Opportunity Zone, it can literally be anything. Um, I think as, as the market is today, about 85% of all Opportunity Zone funds are real estate focused. So developing like condominiums, multifamily, some hotels. Um, the other 15% are business focused. And of those, like I said, we're the only, you know, industrial hemp focused, uh, but there's actually some crypto opportunity zone funds. Um, some other, like I've seen graphic is art, uh, graphic art kind of business where basically uh, bought a factory or kind of like a big office building and they retrofitted it to be like a graphic design hub and stuff like that. And so it just creates opportunities in low income, you know, local communities to provide jobs. Uh, so yeah, the, the only stipulation is you can't have what they call sin businesses, which mm -hmm. is like selling alcohol or uh, no like racing or no golf carts. I mean, no uh, golf, you know, golf events kind of things. Um, so yeah, but, but besides that, it's pretty much endless. 
Okay. Not to get into the weeds too much, but do you know with the tax advantages of the opportunity fund, you mentioned it's similar like a 1031 exchange when the money at the very end is tax free. But let's say I have an investment because right now Biden's talking about eliminating the 1031, which makes this even better because you have less opportunities for similar events or um, tax advantages. So do you happen to know if like I buy a commercial building, I sell it and I invest in this opportunity zone. Do you know if that transaction gets taxed first before it gets an opportunity zone or is that, is it a vehicle in which to take money and have it tax free first and at the end? I know you're not a CPA, but I'm, I'm wondering if you happen to know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a second one you're mentioning. So if I just sold a real estate property, uh, all the capital gains I, I've acquired, I can protect it by putting an opportunity zone fund. And what that does is it protects it for, and it gives you a five-year deferral. So you don't pay taxes for, until 2026. Hmm. Uh, if you invest that in this year is actually a, an additional 10% deduction. So say I made a million dollars of capital gains, I wouldn't pay that million dollar capital gains tax until 2026. And with a 10% deduction this year, I only pay tax on $900,000 of it. And then all the growth of that capital, that, that $1 million in the 10 years comes out 100% tax-free. That's really dope. That's really, really cool. That's a huge advantage for a lot of companies that, that haven't utilized Act 60 in Puerto Rico, for example. Uh, for people who don't know, that's it's a huge opportunity to utilize when uh, you, know, you, you have a, a territory like Puerto Rico that doesn't have congressional representation since you can't have taxation without representation. You pay zero federal taxes um, this is providing that same thing without having to move to Puerto Rico. <laughs> uh, so that's a phenomenal opportunity. Um, are, are you finding that folks in California are embracing that or is, or are they just trying to stay afloat? Uh, I start in terms of California, like the government. Yeah, California itself. specifically seems to be like they're they're they have this massive transition right now from medical to rec and and the the consolidation and com competition and everything um, is is heating up. Do you find that the conversations of talking about tax advantages and things like the opportunity zone are are uh, conversations people want to have, or are you too early to the game? Um, it's, so, I mean, I would say it's not the conversations I'm looking for. Like I was really looking for the opportunities of program to be opportunity for low income communities to really like bring business and, and development into their communities. Uh, unfortunately, just how, you know, this, the way the game works, you know, it's like I said, the opportunities on programs not marketed very well. Mm -hmm. So the people that do know about it are tend to be the more wealthier real estate focused kind of guys. Mm -hmm. And so they're using it to develop, um, you know, proper uh, waterfront properties are, you know, like nice hotels in Santa Monica, for example, it, that's very rare, right? Because the most of the zones are in low income communities, mm -hmm. but even the nicest neighborhoods, uh, like downtown LA, there's still opportunities on land, they're using that to build some type of skyscraper. And mm -hmm. so uh, it's unfortunate, but I think, you know, um, like I said, it's, it's being developed, you know, it's like now the focus starting to shift, I'm like, okay, we get what now we can do opportunities on program, you know, the first wave went out, it's kind of like ICOs, if Anyone's familiar with that? Like the first wave went through, made their money, and now it's more focused. Like, like what's the impact we can actually make now? Opportunity zones. And I think we're starting to see that now because, like, um, like I said, this was a big push this year. Uh, I say, I'll say, that in 2020, you had probably like 95% were all real estate based. Very few opportunity zone businesses, and now we saw now we're at 15% opportunity zone businesses. So we're starting to see that shift from real estate focus to now creating more opportunities. 
that's what you get when you create a business, you create jobs, you know, you create growth for the community. And so we're starting to see that shift, but I haven't, it hasn't met my, you know, satisfaction yet. Mm-hmm. Are you finding anybody that is curious about, um, you know, hemp crete or industrial hemp applications? I know that water, obviously real estate is huge right now. Commercial residential is uh, on the West coast is going gangbusters. Um, but are you finding anybody that, that wants to take a look at, at utilizing um, the excessive amount of, of hemp that we, we have in the marketplace for industrial applications like hempcrete? Yeah, definitely. I mean, hempcrete has exploded. It's in the past, in the past two years. Uh, in 2019, I mean, so 2018 was the big CBD season, right? So like a lot of farmers just overproduced uh, the hemp CBD crop. And that left a surplus of stocks because there's just no use for it. And so it was like 90% plus going to waste. Uh, I saw last year though, and, th- and this year, uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, different people that are, are now processing those stocks from the hemp plant, hemp CBD plant, and using it for hempcrete. And you know, I can't speak to the, to the volume size, size of it, but I, you know, back in 2019, I don't think there was probably one or two uh, US-based operators that are actually making hemp herd. And now you're probably over uh, somewhere near a dozen. So the, that side of it has exploded uh, just because it's relatively easy and the benefits are you know, astronomical. You know, the insulation, the properties, uh, you know, antimicrobial, that's not due to the hemp per se, it's due to the lime binder that they use with it. Um, but you know, the fireproof factor of it is actually playing a really big role in the success of hempcrete. And we're starting to see it you know, actually be taken considered um, in more like commercial applications, like you know, actually doing multi-four buildings using uh, hemp. So it's, it's interesting to see the development of it, uh, but you know, I see it, we're still so new. Uh, just to give like a perspective. So right now we probably have somewhere near a dozen hemp processors that convert the hemp stocks to all the raw materials. Uh, in comparison, you know, corn and soy, this is a corn, they have upwards of a thousand processors across the country. So we're at a dozen. So as it makes it very challenging one for farmers to even grow because where are they gonna process it? And the industry can't grow, you know, four can say, I wanna use hemp fiber in our cars, because where are they going to get the material from? So it's that chicken and egg problem. That's what we're hoping to solve by you know building the infrastructure, building more of these processing facilities in the country to help farmers and help the industry grow. What do you get excited about with industrial hemp? Um, you know, what was it about it that got you into the industry? I mean, with me right now, I think three D printing and the utilization of, of graphene is really interesting because with just like between one and 10% graphene to a hempcrete will increase, I think the, the stability by like 300% or something. I, I don't quote me on that, but it's something stupid. Um, so that's exciting to me is, is with all of these ridiculous prices, because earth doesn't cost that much. You know, like they say, oh, it's because the land, there's not enough land. You know, go to, go to Colorado and tell me there's not enough land. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Wyoming, nobody lives in Wyoming. It's totally vacant. Uh, so uh, yeah, and and you know, trees and bricks and all this stuff does not cost that much. So the margin is insane, and I'm really looking forward to disruption, not only in uh, banking, uh, but other bloated industries like housing. And I think that 3D printing and technology and hempcrete and graphene can really disrupt the hell out of the markets, and that excites me. What are you excited about? Yeah, uh, I think so. The most exciting thing to me is actually just just all of it. Uh, so about in 2015-ish, I realized the world is like is going towards sustainability. Like it, at that time, innovation. 
And so I predicted that. Of producing it so greatly, oh, I just got to. Are you still here? Yeah, you cut out. I got yeah, you cut out. My, my wife. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so yeah, so the part that was exciting me was that how hemp can be used for, like I said, you know, uh, hempcrete, clothing, cars, uh, food, and it's the, it's the fact that it goes all it's all these different industries that would make the volume of of the, of the hemp crop. Um, so you know, so large that the the, the cost of producing will be minimal. And that would be a great way to, you know, replacing all the other intensive, you know, processes like to make concrete or mm -hmm. to make the products that plastic go into cars and glass fibers. And that's like on a high level overview, right? Just like, oh, pure volume wise, you know, would be the lowest cost competitor. Mm -hmm. But it's also the fact that hemp not only can be the lowest cost, but also it, it does it better, you know, than, than, the, than the alternative, right? Like if you look at the concrete example, like for homes, it's the better insulator, right? It has more properties that, you know, beneficial, like fireproof. And like I was mentioned earlier, uh, even with the, like uh, comparing hemp fiber to all natural fibers, hemp is one of the most superior uh, of all of them. It's not the best, I'm gonna be honest, not the, the strongest or the, 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 of, the, of all fibers, but it's a leading prop, you know, it's one of the leading ones. Uh, same thing with food-wise, you know, even the nutritional profile of the hemp seeds is, is amazing. It's, uh, you know, has a perfect balance of omega-3 and 6s. And so the fact that it can it can do all these things, but it does all of it better than the traditional materials, and that to me is the most exciting, you know, just an overview. But I mean, now getting to a specific market of it, uh, Alba is fascinated with electric vehicles back in 2014 with Tesla coming out and everything, and so I had my my mindset of making electric vehicles, and then only later I learned about industrial hemp, and then uh, I'm really excited. At the time, I was working in Formula One doing uh, custom Formula cars, and we, we use carbon fiber a lot. The mm -hmm. biggest car problem with carbon fiber is the cost of using it. And so I learned about hemp, and basically industrial hemp, you can make these same kind of composites that are, you know, so obviously carbon fiber is super strong, super light, uh, but in comparison to glass fiber, hemp fiber is 10 times lighter, and it's also way cheaper to manufacture. So to me, it was like hemp fiber composites can open the doorway into like, you know, changing all the you know, steel and we see in cars into making it into lighter structures so that was exciting also in airplanes and then obviously that uh hemp battery research came back uh came out i think in 2015 saying a hemp battery was eight times more powerful than lithium so mm -hmm. i was like well it was you know getting really crazy now like now we start combining the you know the hemp fiber composites and the hemp batteries we can really make like the ultimate hemp uh electric vehicle super race car kind of a deal and so that's that's like my focus that's my long-term goal is to actually spin off and make like a kind of like a conus egg people are familiar uh basically high-end super car super car that's a, a hemp and electric vehicle focus yeah i'm surprised that hasn't uh made its way to the masses yet because in 2015 the marijuana show season two had a guy that had um hemp his car was made out of hemp and i think the fuel was also hemp and and it didn't really go anywhere. I mean, the, the media loved it, but investors, it seemed like too big of a scale. They didn't really know. It's kind of like ethanol. We're like, oh, I don't really know about growing fuel. Um, and so there's kind of been this, um, this separation between functionality and then um, the, the, the realization of it. And using um, packaging as an example, I think hemp could really kind of just destroy the whole packaging industry. But there's nuances, like with pre-rolls, 
there's a lot of waste. You go up to Canada and they think it's a new iPod every time or whatever, where you open it up and there's another box. And it's like these Russian dolls where the box inside of a box inside of a box. And you're like, you just give me the product already. This is insane. So I understand that they're trying to give you this experience or whatever, but it's at a cost of, um, you know, too, too much waste. So how do you blend minimalism with, with functionality? And I think cannabis could, I mean, not cannabis, uh, hemp packaging could solve that. There's more nuances. Like if you have cardboard and and a pre-roll, that's going to dry it out. So you kind of have to have this plastic composite hemp uh, material, but then does it biodegrade, you know, all of these issues. Um, How do you walk your clients through all of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I don't really dive into the specifics when we talk about hemp products, mostly because we just don't know. Like, we haven't tested what hemp packaging looks like, how it degrades. And so I think I think that's a big problem in the hemp industry is a lot of promises made, you know, a lot of memes, you know, infographics, how hemp can, you know, is stronger than steel or you get biodegrade plastic. And it's like, where have you seen that? Who's actually making that product where we've been tested that and to what standard? And so I think that's a big problem in our industry where it's like, a lot of she said, he said, or just quotes essentially what hemp can do. So we just like to stick to what we know works. And so hemp is not new, right? We've been using it for thousands of years in the past. And so we have that record. Uh, it's only been 80 years of prohibition that we haven't been using it. And so that's just in the United States, but also hemp is already being used in, in Europe and Asia. And so we, that's, we like to use that as our best example. So like right now, nine out of 10 of the major automotive companies in Europe are already using hemp in their vehicles today. And so we believe that same that what they're using out there, the reason why they're using hemp is because it's lighter and, and stronger and it also reduces the carbon footprint of their vehicles. So that same trend is going to come to America once the opportunity for hemp fiber to come and, you know, is available, we'll, they'll do it. And so that's what we tend to focus on is like, you know, examples already being done. And then we just bring that to the United States. Just, you know, simple introductions to how we can use hemp and, you know, stay, staying away from all the, the fairy tales of all how great it will be. Well, walk me through a typical client interaction. Uh, they have, you know, uh, a transaction that's in process and they're looking at uh, maybe um, they want to get into industrial hemp and or they're looking for, um, you know, a, a tax free investment opportunity, whatever the situation is. Talk to me, uh, run me through a, a typical scenario of your client start to finish. Yeah, so we, we don't really do consulting uh, on the hemp side. Like someone wants to get in the hemp industry, you know, we, we don't really guide them. Um, what, I, when I learned, what I learned when it comes to that is it needs to be something that's very like, you know, self-driven, something inside you that has a calling to solve this particular problem in the hemp industry and you're going to go out and, and figure it out. And once you've gone there, I figured it out, done the testing and proved to some degree that it works. Now we're interested in, you know, in investing in, in you as a, as a hemp business. Uh, when it comes to our clients and investors, you know, looking to the opportunity zone space and investing in the fund, um, we basically show, you know, showing the problem. You know, you know, thankfully we have great data out there. Uh, New Frontier Data published an article in December 2020, basically saying like, uh, despite the great potential of the hemp industry, the largest problem is the lack of processing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so we stick to that. You know, like, you know, it's not us, not a biased opinion. You know, this is New Frontier Data, the leader in cannabis analytics. Um, and also just showing them and showing them examples. Like, like I said, like the, the European example, how it's being used in other places and America doesn't have that infrastructure. Uh, but given the opportunity to have that infrastructure in America, you know, we believe we could be you know, a dominating force in the hemp industry. 
And um, I hear this a lot. So we have contacts in other countries, other like in Europe, uh, for example, that they, they see the hemp industry every day. You know, they understand how the hemp is being grown, how it's being processed and sold to the manufacturers. And what he always tells me is that basically that he believes once America uh, applies its strengths and in, in capital and innovation and technology to the hemp industry, the, the game will forever change. America will, will dominate the hemp industry once these three things come into play. And that's what we're excited about. You know, that's what made America strong and we're excited to you know, bring it back. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. We, we have a lot of innovation. Just look at concentrates in California and how they've led the industry for so long. Like Morocco uh, and Lebanon have phenomenal hash, right? But the culture in California specifically um, has just been around for decades. Um, and, and I don't really see that going anywhere, even though there may be, uh, you know, five cents a gram coming out of Colombia and or Peru that could disrupt the wholesale flower markets. It's still the culture and um, the U.S. It's kind of like the whole Hollywood effect um, that's really going to drive all of that. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, like my the same thing. Uh, my friends say that the the cannabinoid market in the United States is on a whole different level. Like, there's no other country in the world that has developed the cannabinoid profiles that we have with our genetics here. And it's you know a, a prop to our farmers and you know innovation and technology they've used to to done what they've done. I think the whole Delta Eight, uh, you know, it's crazy. It is from a regulatory standpoint. That to me is fascinating. How they was somebody able to pull converting CBD isolate into Delta Eight, which is very similar to THC and getting around the loophole, uh, the law says, you know, Delta nine THC is prohibited. And so the chemists did what they did and they found, a, you know, found a, an amazing loophole. I mean, uh, you know, all of it in the end of the day is all medicine, you know, in, in the eyes of the law, it's, you know, it's not, but I mean, all of the, all of they do because they have a patent on it, you know, showing how the medical properties of cannabis, but uh, not getting to that. But yeah, I mean, it just shows, you know, American innovation and what we do and we do it best, honestly. Do you think the hemp bill in 2018 would have been um, written, rewritten from 2014 and passed the way it is if they knew about D8? For Delta 8 is is psychoactive in the same way that, that THC or Delta 9 is, but it's a light version. So instead of having like a shot of tequila, it's having like a, a Bud Light, if you want to make that analogy. Um, yeah, what's your take? Yeah, honestly, I think if Delta A was, you know, happening at the same time they wrote the law, I, they probably wouldn't have done it, um, just knowing what, what, how everything could explode. And, and, but I think everything happens for a reason. I think the only reason why um, a Delta A even existed was because the, the law was written that way, you know, created that, that opportunity is like, okay, well, it says only Delta 9, how can we make something very similar to it without it? Mm. Um, and so, I mean, it, it was crazy overall. I love to see how the, how the industry, you know, developed. Um, you know, it was fascinating to me when, when like I said, when uh, hemp came legalized, it basically legalized every part of uh, cannabis besides THC, Delta 9 THC. And, and that to me was like, you know, that was it. The, the whole game's over. Like you unleashed all the cannabinoids, everything about you know, the amazingness of, of cannabis besides one little, one molecule of it. And, and arguably, I think that molecule has, you know, had a great uh, impact for, you know, uh, medicine. And also spiritual development, but to me, it's just a small fragment of everything that needs to happen. Uh, everything that you know can happen with it from a pharmaceutical perspective, industrial perspective, and all that just got passed in one in one go, without I think without much thought into what you know what they what was done. I think it was just like, oh yeah, it seems to be safe. Let it you know, let's just pass it like 
like it's a corn and it, and it's i mean for us it's great you know we're living the life you know all, now all we have to do now is actually create uh the standards right how hemp can be used as a you know for hemp fiber composites or hemp building materials hemp paper like all these standards have to be created um and that's the only barrier is actually just you know the process and investments of standardizing you know hemp, hemp products do you think it'll be standardized or normalized once it's commoditized what what is the moment is it is it when when i'm gonna call marijuana when the marijuana is is legal and the banking industry allows it is that what what is going to be normalized or um, is it the commoditization of hemp in everyday use that makes it so normal? What is it in your mind that brings this to normalization? Yeah, I, I think it's the commoditization of it. And as it enters the mainstream uh, in, in a non-sexy manner, like um, like this automotive company is trying to use hemp in the, in the cars. And it, it's like, okay, I'm, I drive every day to work with, you know, this cannabis plant in my car. Everything seems to be fine. Nothing, you know, like I'm not getting high from it or any of that stuff. I think as that starts to happen, people more become more comfortable with hemp, uh, especially when people start wearing it. When people's uh, clothing has some mixture of hemp into it, it just really desegregates like, oh, this is, this is harmless. Like, why is this even, even legal? I think that will really break down the stigma. Uh, although I think the cannabinoids market, you know, like pharmaceutical and getting cannabinoids and in, in, in medicine practice, Mm-hmm. That's gonna be way harder barrier to break because now you're actually ingesting it, and so there's a big, you know, a big worry or a big if of what is it gonna do to me, and someone has to do the research and you know figuring it out, and I think that's gonna be a, a big challenge. But uh, I think industrial hemp uh, as a commodity getting in, you know, into textiles and construction, the thing is gonna break open the door, so we can open that conversation more of like how are we gonna ingest the cannabinoids, and a, a really good example of that is actually with hemp feed uh, for cattle and animals. Mm-hmm. And so like, there's actually a big conversation now is like, does the cannabinoid content in the hemp plant, you know, go into the animals as they eat the, the feed and then we eat that same cannabinoids. Like, are we gonna get high from our eating our, our cows and chickens? And like, that's the current like dilemma. Like we can't have hemp feed because they think that might happen, um, which is not true, right? Cause we, we know European is doing it already. And so they have the data, but it's again, it's like bringing it to the United States and the United States person has to do the same testing and figure it out. and um, but like I said, I think the commodization of it is going to, uh, as the lowest cost uh, alternative to traditional products, is going to open the doorway. And then the further testing of why hemp is so much better than the traditional is going to actually open it up to getting to the more harder to break industries like cannabinoids. Yeah, I, I find it interesting. The uh, dry ECS or endocannabinoid system has been dry for so long because cattle used to uh, eat hemp, right? And so now that they haven't, we don't have um, hemp um, and CBD and other cannabinoids in our system and, and it's dry. So I think um, that's causing a lot of, of other issues. Uh, maybe that's a different podcast for another day. Um, how have you seen the industry develop? Your perspective is unique in that you've seen a lot of stuff in California, including direct to consumer sales in California, bypassing rec shops. Your perspective from Florida, California um is 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 unique where's the cultural differences east coast west coast um and how are the businesses different yeah um i mean so it was you know so in florida i could speak to florida not not, not entirely east coast um you know weed was like very like you know somewhat like you know as treated as a schedule one drug let's just you know put it that way and it was like scary if you were doing it you know 
you had no idea what it was doing to your brain. And, you know, what, you know, if you did as a young age, you know, now you're destined to be a criminal. Like that was the image I was, you know, pictured and portrayed, and especially in school. It was the same kind of thing. Like, oh, if we knew that person was doing that kind of drug, you know, you don't want to be with them. Um, and once I learned a lot, it was like, you know, reefer madness, you know, a lot of it was made up. Uh, and I consumed it myself. I realized this is like so much way safer and better for me than alcohol. You know, like I can, you know, smoke a lot and not feel any effects the next day. But when we drink a lot, you know, you just feel dead, right? Hangover. Um, so that kind of a weird mix uh, in the East Coast was like, if you did it, you don't talk about it, only with your friends. On the West Coast, it completely blew my mind. You know, I, when I first got here, you know, you can literally smell it on the streets while you're driving. I was like, wow, and people are just doing it openly. I go to a, you know, a nightclub and people are smoking in the back, in the back and like everyone's sharing, like strangers just sharing with other people. I was like, it's a whole different culture. It took me a long time to actually like wrap my head around it, like how open it was out here. Um, but I think that, you know, that's what so, that was beautiful about it. You know, it really destigmatized like what this plant meant for me. It, it became, in Florida, it was a recreational drug. And you know, I was just like, oh, I just want to get high and feel it. And when I got to California, I realized it's more medicinal, uh, you know, just connecting with people and also just like what the, what the cannabis plant does, um, you know, bringing people together. And so I kind of realized that as, as that's like unique aspect in California. It's like, it's treated that way as a, it's, it's medicinal, but like in a, in a spiritual sense, you know, I'm connecting with people and strangers over, over a connection of like, we all love this plant, you know, and then, you know, relationships for, for from there. Um, what advice do you have for, uh, for businesses getting into the industry? Um, you know, you've, you've seen it from, from both sides, conservative and not, um, when someone's coming into the industry, whether it's an emerging market like Florida or an existing market like California, I would imagine there's kind of two, two separate or different kinds of strategies, but regardless, what, what advice would you have for somebody coming in looking for, um, you know, advice consulting or, um, you know, they've got some extra cash that they're looking for, uh, like an opportunity zone specific uh, style of investment opportunity. Yeah, I mean, so I, I would say, you know, if you're looking to get into the hemp industry, create your own business, I would do the same thing, you know, I did. Uh, you got to go out and network, got to go out to these cannabis events and understand the industry that you're trying to, trying to enter, you know, understand the people, you know, who they are, what's the culture like, uh, what, are the, what are their problems. Uh, where, and then from there, you can kind of get an understanding of like what I can do, what can I apply my skill set from my, you know, my past and helping the people that are here. And so that's why, that's why I did for the first couple of years, just going to these events, networking, hosting events and understanding the pain points. Uh, and from there, you know, I created, you know, I created the business. I realized like we got all these great entrepreneurs that want to create hemp businesses, but there's no capital. And you know, it's, it's, it's bridging that gap was you know, extremely difficult. Um, and it's also because there's no established market. It's not like you're, you're entering something that's really, you know, understood, you know, there's, uh, there's no revenue opportunity. Like, oh, you know, we can't compare like, oh, someone else doing this much revenue. If we create a company, we can do, do X. There's really no data points to go off of. And so that's why I really, you know, like a lot of the opportunities on program kind of handles that financial side of things. Um, now for investors getting into this space, um, take your time. I mean, I think you're going to, you know, a lot of businesses, you know, paint this, like I said, fairy tale, like you know, amazing returns, all stuff like that. And I think a lot of people in the industry are going that towards that way. Uh, I would, I would, I would work with entrepreneurs that understand the risk side of the hemp industry, understanding how it's new and all these are going to create challenges and understanding how, how nascent industries grow and the merger acquisition process of, of new industries. I think a, that a lot of people in the cannabis industry got, um, 
wrecked in that way. Uh, just because, you know, it all created a lot of businesses. And they understand like once capital comes in, the, the whole, you know, the structure of everything changes, you know. All right. So with that, um, where can people find you at? Are you on social media? Are, are you, uh, you have a website? If people are interested in getting a hold of you for a variety of reasons, how can they do that? Yeah. Uh, so I mean, my best platform is LinkedIn. Uh, I got you know most following there and I'm on that pretty much every single day now. So it's, you know, my name, Robert Palma, uh, should be up there. My, my title's supply chain or managing partner, Hempo Z Fund. Um, that's how you spell it, Hempo Z Fund. We also have our website. It's hempozfund.us. So you can learn more about our investment projects, our team, everything will be on there. Okay. Yeah. And we'll put Robert's uh, LinkedIn contact information in, in the description in the show notes to so check them out there. But I think with that, we're going to have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, Robert Palma. He is the managing partner at the Hemp OZ Fund. Robert, appreciate you being with us at the Talking Hedge. Thank you, Josh. It was great. I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, likewise. All right. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is the Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.